Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Surface. I'm Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I love finding out people's stories. I'm often fascinated and curious as to how they develop their mindset for performance. And this podcast aims to dive deep with those types of people to find out how they've cultivated that mindset and how it's progressed through the years. Today, we go beyond the surface with Jesse Itzler. Jesse wears many hats. He's a writer, he's a businessman and an entrepreneur, he's a philanthropist. He really does a multitude of things and as you'll find out, he likes doing things that he's interested in and that he is curious about. He also is a hard worker. He's extremely self-motivated, extremely self-driven and unafraid to do hard things, which will be a common theme throughout our conversation today. One of the things I really appreciate about Jesse is he truly is about the process. He's not into hacks or shortcuts. He's into finding the people that are the best in the world at what they do, bringing them on as part of his team, whether it's a Navy SEAL or going to train with a bunch of Buddhist monks to learn about meditation and how to stay in the moment and build your spirituality framework. He wants to be around the best and he really values being around people that he can learn from. He's a lifelong learner. He's someone who is constantly trying to evolve and adapt and adjust and get better. And he really values experiences. So he takes his lifelong learning approach and applies that to creating experiences and moments that will create what he calls his lifelong resume. So he's all about creating stories, creating memories, and living his life that way. He's a risk taker and he's a man of action. And I think that's ultimately one of the things I really appreciate about Jesse the most is when he sets his mind to do something, he doesn't talk about it. He just goes and takes action and learns and grows. And I think that's so valuable for all of us to remember is the importance of taking action. So as we go beyond the surface with Jesse, I encourage you to go beyond the surface with yourself as well. Jesse, thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast. Uh, I want to start I read your book. I'm excited to get into learning about what life was like living with a seal. Uh, but before we do that, can you just share with us what life was like for you growing up on Long Island, um, your upbringing? You talk about it in the book a little bit, but just give us some more color around what life was like for young Jesse and uh, your environment and your family and, and all that good stuff. Sure. I grew up in Roslyn, Long Island, youngest of four. Uh, to working class parents. My mom was a teacher. My dad owned the plumbing supply house in Mineola, Long Island. And uh, my parents gave me a really long leash, which was a great gift. They let me roam the neighborhood and, um, you know, stay out late. When my mother wanted me home for dinner or anything else, she rang a cowbell that could, like, you know, you could hear it 11 miles away. And that was my kind of, that's how we communicated back then. No text, no Skype, no this. And, um, and that's when I came home. And, um, you know, I was very lucky to have parents that I was able to go to summer camp and do things that just gave me amazing friendships that I still have. You know, and as you get older and business and those relationships that you had when you were kids are so important. And I was fortunate enough that my parents sent me to sleepaway camp and uh, in the summers. And the kids that I went to sleep with are now a lot of them in positions of power. You just never know how that works out. And um, it was just a great blessing. I didn't even really appreciate back then, but I built all these friendships as a kid and that I've been able to maintain that have just really paid off later in life. So, you know, I just grew up in a, with a lot of love and a lot of uh, freedom. You mentioned the cowbell. I just have this image of, it's not like you grew up in, in Sacramento uh, or in like some rural area. You grew up in Roslyn, Long Island. Your neighbors like hear that cowbell or is it like, 
like how vivid is that image in your mind and uh, how much a part of the, like the Itzler uh, name was, was the cowbell? It, the cowbell clock, that was our calling card. I think the neighbor next door, the guy had a blow horn. Everybody had something, but we were the cowbell family. So it, it, everybody in my family had to be home. And even my dad, when that thing rang. There's so many stories in, in the book that you talk about of sort of going for it and being fearless and uh, sort of, you know, just taking action when the stars might not be aligned. Do you relate that back to your childhood as far as having that long leash and that freedom and just the ability to fail and, and go for it? Is, is that, does that correlate or not really? Well, my parents just, you know, um, they didn't put any collars around me. So if I said I wanted to, to paint the garage orange or poke it out, they were like, go for it. Or if I wanted to join the breakdancing club, they were like, go for it. It encouraged me to try as many different things as I could until I found what I like to do, you know? And, um, and that is something that I still trying to, I'm 40, almost 49 years old, and I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do. So I think it plays, it's played a big role in where I am today. I'm a big believer in building your life resume, you know, having as many things and many memories as you can create, as many things on your life resume as you can get. And I think that started at a young age, you know, when my parents just encouraged me to, like, you know, do everything. I remember when, my, when I was amazing advice, and she said, listen, sign up for everything. You know, if there's a speaker, go listen. If there's an intramural ping pong tournament, join it. It's going to be a great way to meet people, and it's going to be a great way to spread your wings. And it was amazing. I was going to listen to these lectures, meeting people, meeting the professors. Why is Itzler here? Why is he in the Monopoly tournament? Why is he in the badminton intramural event? You know, like I was in all that, and it just, you know, it, it, it was great advice for me because I met so many people that way, and, you know, I'm still trying to spread my wings. Was mom was mom really the one that pushed you in that direction, uh, or was dad also to say, you know, try new things, go for it? Uh, what was mom? It sounds like mom was sort of challenging you. Hey, go sign up for this. Go do this. It was definitely my mom. Definitely my mom. You know, my dad was there to cheer me on and support me, but my mom, my mom encouraged me to do that. Was mom a risk taker? No, but I think she just um, needed to get those out of you know life. And she's encouraged all of her grandchildren to do the same thing. You know, just really, um, I think my mother would take her last penny to allow her grandchildren or her children to go abroad or experience something. She's just, just a big believer. She's just a big believer in experiential learning. Got it. And when did music come into your life? When was music like a big uh, factor in, in sort of how you saw the world? Probably like since I was like 11 or 12, I grew up in Long Island, you know, not far from New York City. And once like hip hop, once, once rap started penetrating the air, but even before the airways, when it was just on like Friday night mixtapes and mix shows, um, I got really into it. So music was important to me. But then like 84, 85, I got really into music. And sports? young age I was the youngest of four so my brother played on a you know three sports three sports in high school so I, as a four or five year old kid I was doing all those games and watching him and his friends fight when they played one on one and I just got competitive and, and into it early so if I asked if I was like 13 14 year old Jesse what he's passionate about at that point would it be sports and music would those be the two things that you're really into 
it, at 13, 14, it would be sports. At 15, 16, it would be sports and music. Got it. So music started to really evolve for you in high school. And, and when did you start performing? And when did that become something that you actually did? Well, I, got in, I, got, I started performing in college, but I got a record deal right when I graduated. And so I grad, right like two months after I graduated from American, I signed with a record label called Delicious Vinyl who had two big art artists at the time. One was uh, Young MC, who won a Grammy for Busta Mood, and Tone Loke, who wrote Wild, Wild Thing and Funky Cold Medina. So, I, you know, but I, that's when the kind of the trajectory of my life changed. Got it. And the idea of getting into music, you're at American University. Look, I work with the American University Athletic Department. I'm not seeing a bunch of kids who are into hip-hop at AU. Um, what, what was it like being at American, which... Like, is, is a different type of campus. It's a city school, but it's not in the heart of the district. It's, uh, it's very diverse. There's people from all over the world that are at AU. Uh, where did that sort of evolve? And, and just walk me through your time at AU. Well, um, D.C. is so diverse. And actually, di- D.C. Was a mu- is, a, is and was a huge hub for music. So in the late, in the mid-'80s, go-go music, was like you know in dc was the founding city of gogo so um and there were all these different clubs and open mic nights the world was a lot different because you couldn't consume through youtube and social media you had to go and watch so there were all these different open mic nights and contests and like eight mile but like in in a toned down version so um, I was into that. I just got into that. And, you know, I wouldn't have got that if I was at Lehigh or Colgate or in Ivy. I was in D.C. And um, even though the campus was, you know, uh, a mix of international kids and kids that might not necessarily be into that genre, um, it was very easy to gravitate towards and find it in D.C. So music starts really becoming a part of your identity in college. You join a band, you join a group, like, or are you just like, you know, writing lyrics and, and doing that? What's the process look like for you as far as music goes? So for me, I met a producer. I, I, well, here's the story. I've never been in a studio. I don't play any instruments and I'm not a great singer and I had no connections. <laughs> so that's not a good formula for getting a, a music a deal. So the only way I could make a demo was to take an instrumental, put it into my uh, CD player and then go to my answering machine and hit record while the instrumental was playing on my CD. And that's how I made my demo. And I actually ended up meeting a producer who lived in D.C., a guy named Dana Mosey, super talented, who was working with Kid and Play and Salt and Pepper. And he heard my answering machine and we started working together. And he actually got a job in New York as an engineer and said, why don't you come and let's make a real demo. And I went up to New York with him and... Um, that's sort of how the beginning of my music career, you know, I would go in, he had, he had studio time that he worked until 2am and then there was a break from 2am to 7am. The studio was at, at um, this guy's house, Herbie Lovebug, who produced Salt and Pepper and um, Kid and Play and all these groups. And it was his home. So the studio closed at 2am. I would ride my bike 17 miles from Roslyn, Long Island to Astoria to Corona, Queens and at two in the morning on the basically on the LIE and I would record a demo and I did and uh, that demo that I recorded there ultimately was the demo that got me signed to Delicious Vinyl amazing and what were you studying at AU what were what were you there for academically 
I was pre-law, but I was all about when everybody was sending out resumes and going on job interviews. And I'm like, why in the world do you guys have resumes? Like, I don't want to have a resume. I don't want to go on interviews. I'm, I'm going to make a record. I actually bet my college roommate that I would be on the Arsenio Hall show before your time. Brian, Arsenio Hall was like the letter, like Letterman might even be before your time. No, I'm, I'm good with both of them. I know Arsenio Hall, but no, I did not grow up with Arsenio Hall being the guy, but I know of him and Letterman's not before my time. <laughs> okay, cool. That was my dream. You know, like I would be on one of those shows, you know, so I'm like, well, you guys send your resumes out. I'm plotting how I'm going to get on the Arsenio Hall show. So all the energy you're putting into your resumes to maybe go get a job working for someone for the next 50 years, I'm going to put the same amount of energy into figuring out how I'm going to get on the Arsenio Hall show and get a record deal. It's funny you say that. Like I went to Syracuse, a private school, and uh, all my friends were like, we're going to Wall Street, we're going to go make money, like finance, finance, finance. And I just knew that wasn't going to be me. Um, but I remember like it's second semester senior year and I'm like, oh, I got to like start putting together a resume, trying to get a job. I was arts and sciences, sociology major. Like nobody was really hiring uh, that. Um, and I, I at the time wanted to do Teach for America. And uh, I didn't know that Teach for America accepts like 10% of their applicants and people from Ivy Leagues are applying to, for Teach for America. And it was one of the first rejections that I got, which was helpful for me in the long run because I learned uh, you're in this bubble in college where you get rejected by girls, you get rejected by like other things, but it's not like the rejection of someone telling you they don't want to hire you. And uh, it's just fascinating because I I always tell people I was so good at living in the moment when I was in college. Like it was was easy to live in the moment, but once I got out, I was like, oh crap, now what do I do? But for you, you had had clarity around, you had dreams and a vision as far as like what you wanted to do and how you wanted to do it. So that part was clear. And now it's just about hustling, getting into the right people, getting a demo that's not just off of an answering machine and that's actually sounds pretty good. Uh, and then just working that hustle, is, is that how you would describe it when you graduated? Yeah, but I mean, I had a crazy passion for the journey. So less so about the music and more so about the journey. So, you know, a lot of people confuse passion and they'll say, oh, I love this um, I love this product or I love this business or I love this widget and that's great and that's important but it's equally if not more important as an entrepreneur to to appreciate the process for the journey so when you have shitty days and things go wrong um, and you get rejected you can easily just say you know what that's what I signed up for that's part of the process. So I loved the journey. I didn't care if people shut the door in my face. I knew I was, I had x-ray vision to the finish line, which was getting a record deal. I didn't care how many records I sold. I had to get on the Arsenio Hall show. I had to bet, you know? So that was my only, I was laser focused on that. So the rejection, it didn't bother me. It was just like, okay, on to the next one. You know, so I had, I had a real um, passion for that, for that process. And that meant sleeping on couches and that meant riding my bike at two in the morning to the studio, but I was totally cool with it no matter how long it took. Any idea where that comes from or where that came from? Uh, Competitiveness, you know, it was part of me was just like uh, my own personal bet. Like, can I really get this done? Uh, It was all internal. You know, I don't think. I don't think it was anything. I don't think it was in the, the frosted flakes that I ate as a kid, and I don't think it was in my parents watching my parents do that. It was just, you know, um, if you beat me in Scrabble, I want to play you fifty thousand times until I beat you. 
And if you're going to close the door on my face, all right, I want to make you pay for that. I'm going to make you pay for that. So that was sort of what I was in my head. But so, so to me, like there's three types of reactions to adversity. There's victims who say, why me? There's survivors who say it is what it is. And there's thrivers who say, all right, watch what I'm going to do. Um, and you very much had the thriver, like, all right, watch what I'm going to do. But I'm curious if it was, all right, I'll show you or I'm going to keep knocking on the door. Which of those two? Because I think some people have a, a response where they get rejection and they're like, all right, you're going to regret that one day and I'm going to go off on the other. And then others will take that rejection and say, nope, I'm going to keep knocking until you open up the doors to me. Which of those paths would you say you, you went down? Both. So I think that I think it's a great way to look at it. I've never heard that before, but I love that. I think I think both and more. I think when you want to get a goal so badly, you have to channel all of that. The knock on the door because you're persistent. The I'm going to do it because you know I'm going to. I'll show you. Um, okay, eighth grade bully that picked on me. Where are you and where am I? You know, every you have to channel every emotion. It's no different. Like you know, I ran this hundred mile race for charity. I ran a hundred miles nonstop in under 24 hours and it put me in a wheelchair for four days and um, I had a friend of mine that was attempting to do it recently and he asked me about it and I said to him like you have to channel besides all the other tips that go into it in the training I says from you have to be so whatever you have to pull for that one day to get to the finish line and run 100 miles whatever it is if it's anger if it's jealousy if it's the girl you want to get if it's something that happened with your parents 15 years ago that you don't remember that now it's coming up whatever it is that you have to pull from you better pull from all of it to get to the finish line all of it so you better keep that shit in your head and tap into it at mile 89 you know when you want to stop and you have to remember what it feels like when you lost the Little League game, when you missed the layup, when you got an F on the test and people made fun, whatever. Because you don't want to do that again. And that that's the same thing. Like, if you want to, in my opinion, it's just what separates everybody. Let me just give you an example. You know, when I started running, I guarantee you, I'm looking at you right now on, on Skype, just looking at your physical ability, you could run two miles. You could run two miles. I could I could probably run two miles. I tore my ACL a little while back, and since then it's been hard to run. But I could probably I could probably run two. I, okay, but hundred. I'm, I'm not even I'm not even processing hundred. Let me let me let me get to my point. So you could run two miles. So I would bet most of your listeners, gun to head, could run two miles. I'm just guessing. Yeah. All right. So when I started running, my goal was to run 18 minutes straight without stopping. Nine-minute pace, two miles. If I can run two miles, I consider myself a runner. And since then, nothing in my body has changed. I'm the same physique, same legs God gave me, same heart rate, same genetic makeup. Everything is the same as the two-mile bot guy, and that was my goal. But I ran 100 miles. I took two-mile body and changed my mind into the 100-mile mindset and completed a 100-mile run. But nothing physically changed. I'm not strong. My legs are the same. So what did change? A, I completely believed that I could do it. I completely believed I could get the record deal. I completely believed I'd be on Arsenio Hall, which, by the way, I never got on. Never made it on there. But I believed that. But in my head, I think I was on. 
I completely believed it. I, I looked at every human that had ran a hundred miles that I could find on the internet or whatever. And I said, if they can do it, why can't I do it? I just said it's the same strategy in anything. It's the same strategy in getting the record deal or in you starting your podcast. You're invincible. There's probably a, a lot of guys that want to start podcasts or go into the field you're in or and just say, oh, I have no experience. The learning curve's too much. And whatever the reason that they create in their head, they just don't do it. Yeah, you know? There's, there's an interesting push-pull that I deal with that I really believe that greats have. And, you know, uh, there's one thing I want to tug on, which is, you see people like Ken Griffey Jr. or Kobe Bryant or Stephen Curry. Um, you can go on and on. A lot of times, athletes whose fathers played professional sports, it normalizes it for them. And they, they're like, yeah, of course I can play at that level because they see it and they're open to it. Um, and I think it's, it's something that people that grow up in homes of successful families, uh, they see that. So that just becomes normal. That's just sort of expected. Um, I think there's it's interesting that you sort of saw those people that ran those 100 miles and you you humanize them and said, they're, they're human, I'm human, why can't I do what they do? But there's another part of that, which is like, narcissism is a really interesting uh, concept because I think we look at it as a negative in our society that someone's too narcissistic. Um, but if you look at right. if you look at great performers, they have a little bit of I'm gonna fucking do this and I'm gonna make it work. And I think the the key is to match neuroticism, like have a sense of neuroticism, like I'm gonna do this the right way. I'm gonna cross, you know dot all my eyes, cross all my t's, and make sure that everything's almost perfect. But then when it's time to perform, I'm gonna do whatever the fuck it takes to be successful. And you. And you hit the nail on the head when you said when I'm running at 89, mile 89 or 80, I need to just find a way. There was a movie called Win Win, which was a wrestling movie. Um, I don't know if you saw it. It was Paul Giamatti. And there's a kid who's this great wrestler. And there's a scene in practice, and they're asking the kid, like, what are you thinking when you're wrestling? And he's like, well, I'm imagining that somebody is taking my head and they're pushing me almost underwater. So when they have me down on the mat, they're like pushing my head into the water and I'm suffocating and I, I just need to do whatever the fuck it takes to get up and put that guy on his ass. And it's a high school wrestling team. And the coaches are like, oh, all right, guys, do whatever the fuck it takes. And that was like their, that was like their, their call and their mantra is like, whatever the fuck it takes. And to your point, I think when we are performing and we have crossed that line and said, now I'm in the arena, now I'm on the stage, now I'm on the court, now it's I'm going to do whatever it takes to compete. Like you said, they might beat me 50 times in Scrabble, but I'm going to find a way. Or um, I'm at mile 89, I'm committed to this, I'm going to do whatever it takes. Like one of the amazing stats is 99% of New York City Marathon runners finish. They just finish because they signed up for it. Most of them trained. Some freaks don't train and just go out and run the New York City Marathon. But, you know, they are committed to doing it. And to your point, I think when you commit to something and you're all in and you've pushed the chips in and you can say, all right, let's make it happen, um, it's free. Uh, there's, there's freedom to that. Um, so before we get into your decision to turn into this, you know, ultra marathon runner or just marathon runner in general, uh, you're, you're, you're trying to get in the music scene. Um, you're, you're knocking on doors. You're finding a way. Uh, you're, you're hustling, but you're also in love with this process and dealing with rejection. Um, you tell stories about, I'm going to call it exaggerating the truth. 
um, in order to get in the door. Uh, how would you phrase those stories as far as getting in with the record label? Like one of the stories you talk about in the book is calling somebody and sort of representing someone and uh, I'll call it maybe misrepresenting. But what did you think of when you hear the, that phrase of exaggerating the truth and sort of taking the action and, and finding a way in? When I was younger, I, I would do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to stand out. It's so cluttered, so competitive. I just, you know, I had to break through that clutter. That was kind of what was going through my mind. Just like the wrestlers, like, oh, I'm suffocating. My mind was, I got to get out of this and stand out. I'm curious, because um, I work with a lot of sports teams, and I know you have gotten to see sports teams uh, from the inside out and, and met, you know, interesting athletes. The dynamic of standing out versus fitting in when you're in a team environment, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think sometimes guys need to stand out, sometimes they need to fit in. What are your thoughts on standing out versus fitting in? Uh, as far as it relates to speak, as, as it relates to team? Yeah, or as it relates to performing. Like, uh, when did you feel like you needed to stand out in your life, and when are times where maybe you needed to fit in? That's a good question. Uh, well, I think... Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to, to, to stand out in some way. And I don't mean stand out in the sense that necessarily uh, a normal definition of stand out would be interpreted to be. I think, uh, for, for example, I just uh, recently tried out for the Maccabee uh, Masters basketball team. Not recently, 2009. That's when you have four kids under seven, everything is recently. But... Um, but when I went to practice uh, and went to tryouts, I said, you know what, like, I'm not going to become a really good basketball player better than I am in 60 days. You know, it's not like my shot's going to improve dramatically or I'm going to become better with my left, going to my left or whatever. But that's probably what everybody's doing, putting up shots. But I could definitely be the most fit. So I spent 60 days getting in the craziest shape, I could basketball shape I could be in. So then that meant being able to guard anyone 90 feet for 40 minutes, basically. And that was my version of standing out. It was just like, okay, how am I going to make this team? How are the coaches going to know me? Why would they want me over someone else? Everybody else is probably 6'2", 200, just like me. You know, so that's what I mean by standing out. Yeah. Um, as it relates to team, now obviously, chemistry, culture is, is, a, is, a, is a key ingredient in success. So you never want to outshine. You always want to be we. But as an individual, you want to stand out in whatever your role is. You know, look at look at Tristan. You know, Tristan is he's standing out as a rebounder. That's that's his role. I think that it's important to be a standout in what you do, uh, and not from a personality perspective, but in what you do, what your role is, as it relates to team. Yeah, it's funny you brought up Tristan because I was thinking about him saying I, I'm I'm a star in my role with Cleveland, and you look at someone like Draymond who is a star in his role but just does it in a different way and, and maybe in a different tone uh, I, but it, I, I find this so interesting because at some point someone might try to put you into a role that limits you um, at some point in the music industry or um, in, in business, someone might have said to you, no, Jesse, like, you need to just stay in your, in your lane or, or stay in your role. And there are times where you probably broke off from that and just said, fuck this, I'm going to try something different. Um, so I think that's such an, another interesting concept, which is like, when do I stay in my lane and just, you know, 
get really fit, be the best defender on the Maccabi team versus, you know what, I can add another wrinkle to my game and be maybe a little narcissistic and, uh, you know, create that, uh, that sort of self-belief that I can do something that maybe others don't see in me. Um, can, you, can you pull on that and tug on that a little bit for me? Yeah, I mean, but I think I, I, think I just kind of touched upon it. But, uh, you know, I, listen, I agree with you. And I think as it relates to business, I'm always trying to be different and I'm always trying to stand out and I'm always trying to separate myself as much as I can. But as, but it's, you know, when you put team into it, um, and coach and all this other stuff, it's, it, it adds a different element and layer as it relates to business though. I mean, you know, that I'm encouraging people to stand out. I'm encouraging my employees to say, okay, if no one told you how to do your job, how would you do it? Break the norm, you know, get rid of the manual. You know, so that that it's a little bit. You know, there's different buckets here. The sports bucket's a lot different than the business the business bucket. Sure. So tell me more about business. So you do the music thing. Um, I think. Can you just can you uh, wrap that into a bow and just sort of talk about the rest of your time in the music industry? And then also, I know you have some entrepreneurism in you. So I know you wear a lot of different hats, but try to just. Give us a little more perspective on music and then uh, shift over to the business world. And uh, Yeah, so right out of college, I went, I the record deal with Delicious Vinyl. Um, that was my goal. I never, I didn't reset my goals, which was a big mistake. Once I was getting signed, I didn't care how many records I really sold. That was my goal. And got a lot of, it's, it's hard when you, if you don't reset your goals because it's hard to motivate. So... I don't know if that was the reason or not, but I didn't get picked up for a second album. And so I moved back to New York. I started doing theme songs for professional sports teams. I did the Go New York Go song for the Knicks in 92. And then all the teams that came into Madison Square Garden were like, why don't we have a theme song like this? And I realized, like, wow, that's really my point of differentiation. You know, that's how I'm going to stand out and be different. I'm going to write theme songs for professional sports teams. So I did that for about two years. Uh, some of the songs became quite popular, started selling the songs that we you know, had performed for these teams and sold that company to a public company called SFX. And it was there that I was introduced to private aviation because the owner of the of SFX at the time sharing a private jet and invited my, my partner and I as guests on his plane for a trip. And we were like, people fly like this? This is outrageous. How do we fly like this? And by the time we landed, we had already basically created an idea called, which ultimately became Marquee Jet, which is a private jet car company where you could have the dream was to have a plane available on six to 10 hour notice anywhere in the country. You wouldn't have to worry about the pilots or the scheduling. You just pick up the phone and say, I want to go to Buffalo. The plane picks you up and takes you to Buffalo. And if it's a two hour flight, you would buy 25 hours of flight time. You would just have two hours left. There were 23 hours left. You'd work it off like a debit card, almost like a prepaid Starbucks card for private jets. And, um, we took that idea. We, we had, we loved the idea. The problem is we had no airplanes. It's pretty hard to start a private jet company with no airplanes. And we partnered with a company called NetJets that had a big fleet. Started this company called Marquee Jet. We grew it to uh, about $5 billion in 
in cumulative sales, and we sold it to uh, Warren Buffett's NetJets. And then I got involved in a coconut water company. I'm a runner, as I mentioned earlier, and I did a lot of research on hydration and and nutrition when I ran my 100-mile run. And uh, I was like the human guinea pig for coconut water. I I ran this whole 100-mile race pretty much powered by coconut water, and I was like... When I finished, I said, "This this is the fountain of youth, man. This is this is going to be the next big big thing in, in beverage, a natural Gatorade. I mean, wow!" And um, I ended up partnering with a, a small company called Zico that was doing a couple of million dollars in sales. And two years later, we sold that company to Coca Cola. And uh, now, um, you know, I'm a, I'm living in Atlanta. I'm a dad of four, and I do things that that give me enjoyment you know projects are part hobby and and part passion but i'm just trying to get involved in things that i really like to do you know jesse i had someone tell me once that your net worth doesn't necessarily equal your self-worth um i'm curious what you think about that yeah i mean i'm doing the same exact thing i was doing in 1990 my day is exactly the same i only eat fruit until noon so i have fruit in the morning i run every day um, I wear basically the same kind of sneakers. I wear shorts um, every day. So nothing has changed for me other than I can get a little bit more brown rice if I want to. But, um, yeah, I, I look at it more like – I look at it this way. I think a better way for me to answer that question would be like I think you have a life meter, okay? Let's say that everyone has a life meter. You have your biological age. All right, mom, 40, I'm going to be 49. You have the age that you feel. So I feel like I'm 32. So that's a big plus. You want to feel younger than you are biologically. And then you have on your life meter, your experiences. So if you put all your experiences in a blender, where are you on the life meter? 200 being the highest score, you know, you want to be as close to 200 as in experiences that you create, marathons that you've ran places you've traveled, battles you've had in business, whatever it is. That's kind of how I grade my my uh, success. That's my life resume. You know, I want to feel as young and active and healthy and vibrant as I can. That's something that I control. can control. I can't control my biological age, but I can definitely control my life resume and what's on it and what I'm doing and what, you know, this year alone, in the last six months, I've climbed Mount Washington. I've ran, I've ran a marathon. I've lived on a monastery for 15 days. I've um, gone to a basketball camp. I mean, that's that is how I measure, and and most of that stuff doesn't cost a lot of money. Climbing Mount Washington, there's no fee to get on Mount Washington. Running a marathon, you need an $80 application and a pair of sneakers. You know, a lot of the great things that make you feel most alive cost no money. So you you said right from the get go that you were you valued ex experiential learning and experiences tend to drive you uh, in, in a lot of different ways. You can't slip in that you spend 15 days with a monk without giving us a little more insight into what that was like. I have been fortunate. I went to Cambodia and spent the morning, um, you know, meditating and, and doing that whole thing. And I, th- I found it to be really um, just an amazing experience. But what was your experience living with a monk for 15 days? And then maybe this is a good transition also into what it was like for you to live with a Navy SEAL. So you're living with a SEAL and then you're living with a monk. You can tackle those however you want. 
Um, well, well, one of one of the experiences, the seal was extremely taxing physically and mentally, and the other experience was living with the monks was taxing um, purely spiritually and as as in, and taxing in the sense of basically getting off a digital addiction. So um, they they both reaped huge rewards in different buckets of my life. The, the I'll start with the SEAL experience. That was, you know, I, I, I was doing a relay race in San Diego. It was a 24-hour race. That format of the race was, you know, you run a mile, friend runs a mile, the next guy runs a mile. Whatever team runs the most miles in 24 hours wins the race. And I saw a guy at the starting line who I went to relay with was his own relay team, and he was super big, heavy guy, fit. But like had a lot of weight, and um, he only had it was a it, the race was unsupported. You had to bring all your own supplies, and he only had a box of crackers, a bottle of water, and a fold-up chair. So I said to myself, like, how in the world is this guy going to run for 24 hours at that weight? with only these supplies. And sure enough, he had broken all the uh, small bones in, in his, both of his feet and was struggling. He had, a, he had kidney failure. He was peeing blood. Mm. And I watched this guy. Uh, you know, I, My first thought was, like, we got to get him to a hospital, some like medic. Please come help this man. But I watched him get out of his chair get to his goal of 100 miles. And, you know, I said to myself, holy shit, like, whatever drive determination that got him out of his chair to continue going with broken bones and kidney failure, if that could be taught, if I could teach that to my employees and incorporate that into my own personal self-development, then all the buckets in my life would be better. My relationship with my kids, my goals at work, everything. So I cold called him and flew out to meet him. And, and then, you know, shortly thereafter, he was at my breakfast table. So that, that was kind of experience one that I said, I realized like, whoa, going back to experiential learning, we talked about earlier, who else can I learn from? Like if I learn from probably one of the mentally toughest humans on the planet, well, everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to, you know, get as much out of their life spiritually as they can. Well, who can I learn from? And let me go to the spiritual masters. Let me go to the monks. So I went and lived on a monastery for 15 days. And that was a completely different experience because uh, there was no push-ups and diving in frozen lakes and all the stuff I did with the seal. This was, a, this was just being in isolation. I was on a 500-acre monastery in the woods. Uh, the monks, there were eight monks in me. The monks had been there for 50 years and doing pretty much the same routine. And I'm now inserting my busy life into their very calm and reflective life. And okay, so you know what can what nuggets can I apply from this fifteen hundred year tradition monasticism and apply it into my modern day life? Where and that was sort you, of what, what I was searching. Where were you on spirituality would, before you went there, and then where were you on spirituality after? I mean, like I believed in karma, but like on the like on the one to ten meter with like the Dalai Lama being a ten, I was like a two. Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, I help I help old ladies cross the street. I try to do the right thing. I believe in tradition. I, I wasn't meditating, and I didn't have any kind of spiritual routine. Um, and more importantly, like probably all of us, 
you know, keep the phone next to my bed at night. The first thing I do when I wake up is checking my emails. I'm on social media. I'm posting. I'm responding. I'm running 9,000 miles an hour. I'm, you know, I feel like my, my phone is controlling me. As soon as I get an email, I want to respond. If someone doesn't respond to me, I'm like, why aren't, why aren't you responding? You know? So, um, just, I bet a lot of your listeners are in the same world. So I just felt like I needed a change. I wanted to tone it down. <clears throat> I didn't want it to continue at that pace. And you know, if you get sunburn, you get out of the sun. If you want to lose weight, you go on a diet. If you want to detox digitally and, and learn, you know, let's go to a monastery. What does that process look like for you now? Are you are you into meditation? What is what do you do to sort of have that spiritual center? Um. Well, I'm definitely more aware. I'm definitely more present. I'm definitely uh, uh, learned to say no. I, I've re repurposed my relationship with time. You know, I'm very aware of. I think a lot of people have really neglect the relationship with money and time. So um, I've always had a good relationship with money, but my relationship with time, I think, was a little out of balance. It's easy to get distracted when you, you know, when you, when you re-enter. You get bombarded with stuff. You mentioned in the past you would go to your phone as soon as you wake up, and I think most people listening to this can relate to that um, and being a slave to the technology. Uh, what is what does it look like now when you wake up in the morning? Have you have you changed that, or do you still go to the phone? I still go to the phone, but I go to it for different reasons. Really, just to make sure there's no emergencies, and um, I'm not on it all day, so I put a lot of boundaries around how I use my phone. Very often, I won't take my phone uh, to places, and I'll you know I'll show up, and they'll be like, "Can I borrow your phone?" I'm gonna have a phone here, so I put a lot of boundaries around it, and uh, ultimately, I want to get off of it altogether but I'm, I'm just not there yet it is it's it's the addiction of that we're living in right now right we, other generations had alcoholism cigarettes we are all addicted and these phones that we're carrying with us at all times are meant to be addicting that's that's the whole purpose of them so it is a it's an interesting time to be alive in the sense that if we're not careful we find ourselves swiping because that's just what we're We've, we, our, our brain has 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 gotten used to that. It's kind of like when people are addicted to eating or sex or whatever it might be that they're just doing it unconsciously. Um, so I would imagine spending 15 days away from it was probably difficult. It probably was a detox, um, and there were probably times where you just wanted to grab the phone. Um, so I, I would ima- I would imagine that would be a pretty amazing experience. Yeah, no, it really was. It really was, and. You know, that you forget how easy it is to just pick up the phone and call or text or email and communicate. And when you're away from that, what was amazing for me was, like, I didn't realize how many decisions we all make every day. Even little things, like what time should we leave? What should we wear? What car do we drive? Should I make a left turn? You know, should I go to this meeting? Should I not have this? What should I order at dinner? What time is dinner? What should I have to drink at dinner? The monastery... All those decisions are taken away from you. So you eat when they tell you when to eat. You whatever they serve, you have. So you don't have to think about time ordering. You wear one outfit. When they say pray, you pray. When they say work, you work. So it frees up all this energy that you use to make these decisions, which is crazy and taxing. So like, 
the monks were 75 going on 20 because they had so much energy freed up from, and I became really aware of all the meaningless decisions that go on during the day. And the decision fatigue is a real issue. It's a real thing. I think I read that the average American makes 35,000 decisions a day. And some of them you don't think about, but many of them you do. So, um, you know, even for this podcast, we had to decide when we're going to do it, what time, what number we're going to call on, what are we going to talk about, got to think about it, prepare, decide how to answer. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just, this is just one element of a day of add kids in the mix, add taxes, add pressures, add driving, add things that break. So it's a real thing. So when you slow down the clock and you take away a lot of the decisions that mean nothing, you know, if you hit the lead on your computer right now and just blew it up, you'd be okay. Yeah. There's, you might go crazy for a day, but you'd be okay. There's two things I want to pull on. Number one, there's something called ego depletion, which basically suggests that willpower is limited and can be used up. And so the more willpower we have to not eat a cheeseburger, the more likely we are to then you know, give in to have a sexual affair or, uh, or not exercise. So when we use willpower in one place, we lose it in another. That's still being argued in, in science, but uh, it's an interesting theory and an interesting concept. Uh, and then the other idea that, that came to me is uh, the power of habit and that 40% of our decisions a day on average are, um, are just based on habit and routine. So, um, we also have become very mindless in what we do. So like the decision to just pull the phone without consciously choosing it is also problematic because now we're a slave to our environment, our situation, rather than making the choice to live intentionally or purposefully. So um, there's a double-edged sword there, right? Which is, you know, what can we do that we don't have to use uh, willpower on, whether it's what we wear every day. Um, you know, I think, you know, Steve Jobs was a fan of just wearing the same type of shirt every day and then he didn't have to worry about making a decision there so he could make decisions on more important things but then the flip side of that is when do we become mindless that we're not actually making decisions on the things that are important in our life um so i think the mindlessness um combined with habits combined combined with willpower are all in that wheelhouse that i would think spending 15 days uh with a bunch of monks uh could give you some clarity around just what, how do I want to live my life? There's nothing to say that having a cell phone is bad. It's just if we overuse it and are a slave to it, that's when it becomes problematic. And I think, you know, the old adage, too much of anything can be, can be a bad thing. Um, is that's something that I, I do believe in. I think you can turn anything that is good and make it bad by overusing it. We can use us. We can overuse a strength, and now it turns into a weakness. Um, so I, those are concepts that are very. Uh, real and, and stay with me. Um, I want to just give you the last couple minutes to promote whatever it is you want to promote. Um, obviously, I read your book, uh, Living with a Seal. I really loved it. Um, in the book, Jesse talks about uh, seal. He, he he uses the word seal, uh, but the guy he's talking about is a guy named David Goggins, who I don't know if it's since your book or before or after, but uh, you can listen to David Goggins. Uh, he's been on podcasts. He's done YouTube stuff. Uh, just a, a really interesting guy and really interesting uh, the way he looks at life and approaches life. Um, if you haven't read that book, I, I certainly can endorse it. I thought it was it was funny. It was real. Uh, the stories, it's really storytelling. Um, it, it's what it is. And I think most good books have storytelling. Uh, so definitely check that out. But 
Um, Jesse, I know you're doing some other stuff, so uh, give us some insight into what you're up to and, and how people can find you. Well, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at the 100 mile man, the number 100 mile man. And um, I recently set up a Facebook group. Uh, you can you can access it at We Do Hard Stuff we do hardstuff.com but basically i post a physical challenge every month and if you complete the challenge on the honor code uh i donate a hundred dollars to all the finishers to the charity of the month and we have thousands of people participating we've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars uh and it's just a it's just a really positive fun thing and no gym needed any age group or any um ability level uh can participate and it's hard but totally doable uh, and you go at your own pace. So that's at wedohardstuff.com. And um, I appreciate the shout out on the, on the book and everything and uh, and being here. Brian, I'm really proud of you and, and what you're doing. And I read all your blog posts um, and uh, I, I get a lot out of it. So I'm glad you're in my world. Well, Jesse, man, I felt like we did a Cliff Notes version. Um, I, I didn't even dive deep into uh, the businesses that you started. I, we didn't talk about uh, your, your now uh, an owner with the Atlanta Hawks. We didn't talk about your wife, who's also seemingly an amazing human. I mean, we could have gone on and on, um, but I appreciate the time that we did have. Uh, and, and let's talk again soon. And uh, would love to continue to pick your brain about your mindset. I mean, we kind of glossed over the fact that you ran 100 miles, and I don't know how we didn't do a, a deep dive into that. Um, so, like, these are things that I want to continue to learn from you. And uh, I follow you on Twitter. You're an amazing follow there. So, I appreciate the time, and, and I'm sure we'll catch up again soon. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Keep it up. All right. Thanks, Jesse.